I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. It is great to have you with us. Today we're going to be looking at yet Luke again and, and this next reading, which is Luke 17, and Revised Common Lectionary says 5 through 10, but Alan plans on talking 1 through 10, and he'll explain why, but I think if you jump in at 5, you're going to feel a little lost. So, Alan, why don't you take us away? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. If you jump in at 5, you're definitely going to feel lost. Yeah, Our gospel lesson for this week continues to pose challenges for us, and as we've already implied the selection in the revised common lectionary is problematic to say the least i just don't think we can read this passage without taking it as a whole and so we're going to look at 17 verses 1 through 10 in my segment and the idea is that jesus is summarizing the challenges to faithful discipleship in the kingdom that he's been laying out all along in this journey to jerusalem section really and all along in the gospel of luke and in response the apostles they're as they're Mm -hmm. called here confess their inadequacy yeah, interesting. And is this the first time we see apostles? It's okay. not used much. No, in the book uh-uh. of Luke. it's used in Acts a lot. <clears throat> yes, we're, yes. we're we're studying Acts right now, and so this and I, you know I think it's important to note that the Greek is different here. Yeah, too. it yeah. flip flops. I mean, in in Luke, typically there uh, Luke refers to them as disciples, and only a handful of references to apostles, okay. and and typically in Acts they're called the apostles. Okay, yeah. okay. So what? Why the why the change? Why the flip flop? I mean, why why apostles? Is, is there something about that word that is more? Directive? Well, I think I I, it may, it, I don't know, but it may have to do with you know just the whole flow of Luke and Acts because you know by the time we get to Acts, you know they have been commissioned by Jesus right. uh, at the end of Luke chapter twenty four or at the beginning of Acts chapter one. Okay, okay, all right. So moving ahead, um, obviously where to begin this reading yeah that's that's the problem and we've i mean we we continue to find that with the revised common lectionary mm-hmm. unfortunately but in this case uh, it's not entirely without merit i mean you know the, the the connection between this text and its context is not immediately obvious mm-hmm. um and moreover the connections between the various elements in this text are not clear. right right and so in the In the immediate context of Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells them to make every effort to avoid causing others to stumble Mm -hmm. in verses 1 and 2, and yet they are to forgive others who sin against them when they repent, even up to seven times a day in verses 3 and 4. They are to have the kind of faith that, though as small as a mustard seed, can uproot a sycamore tree and cast it into the sea in verse 6. And all of these elements have at least superficial parallels in the other synoptic Gospels, and they're used in different connections in those Gospels, which raises the question about whether there is an inherent connection in this context or whether whether Luke has simply collected isolated sayings of Jesus, as uh, Joseph Fitzmaier would say. Well, and I... I think I've heard that 
too. I mean, that's it, a just pretty, kind of a, oh, he just put them here and stuffed them in because he didn't have another place. That's to a put pretty them. typical uh, form critical observation, and it has to do with the assumptions um, of form critics about the origins of the Gospels. Form mm-hmm. critics tend to focus on the idea that these individual sayings of Jesus sort of floated around on their own until they came to be written down in the Gospels, and so that the Gospel writers, you know, had access to these um, individual sayings, and they made use of them as best they saw fit. And and it's just, you know, Fitzmaier's commentary just treats it as a string of isolated sayings that Luke happens to just throw in here. You know, as I was thinking about Luke and our study so far, I think Luke's a better writer than that. I mean, I think I Luke think all is, the gospel writers are better you know, writers than to, that. to kind of say, oh, I mean, <laughs> I might expect that out of a uh, a college student, you know, and with a few sound bites, putting them in here or there. But but Luke has been very intentional. So I'm, all of the gospel writers. I'm are, excited yeah. to find out yeah. what you know Alan has here for us in terms of, of, of then if it is intentional how this works. So yeah. keep keep going. Well, on. and I think basically if you look at the flow of Luke's narrative, a pattern emerges in the preceding context. Jesus has provided some fairly demanding teachings to the disciples. Everything that Jesus had said that challenged the scribes and the Pharisees would have challenged the disciples as well, including teaching about love for neighbor, which essentially meant giving without expecting anything in return, Mm -hmm. his warning about storing up treasure in heaven rather than towards themselves, his insistence on extending hospitality to the outcasts, and his theological foundation for his ministry to sinners and the joy in heaven over those who repent. All of that would have challenged them just as much as it challenged the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, that's kind of how people function. I know. That's kind of human nature, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. In the parable of the rich man Lazarus, Jesus makes it clear that they're to hear and obey the teachings of Moses and the prophets regarding the treatment of those who are destitute. Again, all of this would have challenged the disciples every bit as much as it did the Jewish religious leaders. And when you add all of that to the warning against stumbling blocks and the demand for unlimited forgiveness here in chapter 17, it's no wonder that the disciples responded by asking for faith. I I mean, I think that makes sense once you get to that I think it does, too. I (laughs) Yeah, I think it does too. Yeah. In fact, I would say that Joel Green persuasively argues that the point of this passage is that Jesus is now turning to his own disciples to reinforce the teachings and warnings he has given Mm -hmm. to the Jewish religious leaders. Um, The fact that Jesus urges them to be on your guard here uh, would have reminded them. It's the same word. uh, The last time he used this word, it was in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. It's the word prosecco, and two of the four uses of prosecco in Luke explicitly refer to a warning against the Mm -hmm. Jewish religious leaders. So this follows then from from, uh, Green's ongoing observation throughout this section of Luke that while the disciples and the Pharisees have alternated as Jesus' primary audience, both have been there all along. So when he's addressing the the scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples are sort of in the background listening, and vice versa. When Mm -hmm. he addresses the disciples, the Pharisees and the scribes are there in the background. And so Green observes that the disciples and the Pharisees receive parallel messages, shows that these two groups are not so far apart, at least not yet. 
Jesus remains open to the possibility that Pharisees will hear the word and respond in obedience on the one hand, but he's equally aware that disciples, if they are to truly be his disciples, remain in yeah, need of formation. Yeah. Oh, I, I, this is, that's really good. It yeah, really it is really insightful, is I think. Yeah. Uh, insightful? And that was all a quote from, from Green's commentary yeah. on the Gospel and of Luke. I think, I think we tend to see the disciples are over here and they're good. And we see the Pharisees over here, they're bad. <laughs> and we tend to see that they're, the Pharisees aren't redeemable, but the disciples are perfect, and, and this really makes them all very yeah, human. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Green adds that at least during the journey to Jerusalem, the borders separating disciples and Pharisees remain relatively fluid. Mm-hmm. So um, I think this is a great insight into helping us understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it makes also all the teachings reach out to both groups, mm-hmm. right? To anyone exactly. who's listening. And, exactly. and and I think that's really important for today and our people in the pews, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So furthermore, the collection of sayings in Luke 17, 1 through 5, also reiterate the ordinary daily demands of discipleship, avoiding mistreatment of the little ones, along with the call for boundless forgiveness toward those who may mistreat them, mm-hmm. up to seven times a day which is interesting because in Psalm 119, 164, the psalmist says that he would worship God seven mm, times a day. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a significant uh, phrase, I think, here. The idea okay. is, is boundless forgiveness that, that basically is something that you're going to do um, uh, as fully as possible. Right, right. Oh, yes. As Green observes then, this is simply part of the daily life of those whose lives are oriented around the merciful God. We recall, you know, be merciful as your father is merciful. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is going to provide an interpretive key for the parable or the proverbial saying that's going to follow mm-hmm. later. This whole idea of the, uh, the fact that this is just basically the daily life of those who are oriented towards uh, discipleship in the kingdom. So this leads us, uh, friends, to actually today, to the, to the today's, what is listed as today's passage. Right. Kind of sets the stage for it. And I will say, you know, I will not preach on just Luke 17, 5 through 10. I, yeah. I will be reading and preaching on 17, 1 right. through 10 when I, when I use this well, passage. Well, I think every, everyone knows, you know, you can read. You don't have to read. Right. There's no. There's no law saying you have to read just five through ten. But you could read that whole passage. Yes, and, indeed. And honestly, it's not very long. Even adding the additional five yeah. verses, so yeah, it, it's right. still a nice size reading there. And yep. um, and that's my better plan. context. Yeah, I will do that. Yeah. Yep. So and then you know the 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 lectionary passage begins in Luke seventeen five. The apostles said to the Lord, "Increase our faith." Now, it's important to note that they're called the apostles here. As we mentioned before, um, Luke typically calls them the disciples. Only here at the Last Supper and at the cross does he name them apostles. Now, in Acts, as we said before, that pattern is reversed. So it, it, it's, I think it's important that Luke speaks about them as apostles here. Furthermore, Luke says that they made their request to the Lord. Now, again, we've seen that Jesus, others call Jesus Lord fairly commonly in Luke's gospel, but Luke actually refers to Jesus as Lord in his narration, primarily in this section of the gospel, the journey to Jerusalem. Nine out of the 12 times that Luke refers to Jesus as the Lord occur in this journey to Jerusalem Mm -hmm. section of Luke's gospel, which is one of the reasons why I kind of think perhaps that Luke may have been drawing on a unique source 
uh, mm. a unique written source here because uh, this is different from what you find elsewhere in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, it, you know, it may have been shocking for the early church, I think, to hear that apostles uh, are admitting their weakness. And in fact, Joseph Fitzmaier, who, who was a distinguished Catholic scholar, but nevertheless, you know, he was working within the Roman Catholic tradition. He insists that because they're apostles, we must assume that they have faith. And I don't yeah. agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't either. And I, I like especially how you set up this earlier for us, which is showing us that, you know, these are human responses in the well and and in, in response and by converse the the way of the kingdom is right. contrary to what is going to be natural for them as humans uh, yeah exactly yeah. exactly so i fits by clearly has kind of a roman catholic take i think is what yes, we're reading I here think so too. Mm-hmm. but i think it has made itself move beyond roman catholic circles so i think it's mm-hmm. important to put out yep, here because right. i hear this well sometimes. we tend to assume the apostles mm-hmm. are i mean they're saints they're saints right matthew saint luke, mark saint, saint luke mm-hmm. saint john right exactly. i mean they're they're saints right uh how can a saint right. need to have more faith you right know? right <laughs> So then the, the request for Jesus to increase their faith in this context, I think, relates to the ability to show themselves faithful in discipleship. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is the primary implication of faith in Luke's gospel. And, and this also pray, plays on the preceding context in Luke chapter 16, um, where we remember Jesus said those who align their lives with the kingdom of God are to be are called to be faithful. Whoever is faithful in little is faithful in much, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so the, the 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 criterion for discipleship is being faithful. And so I think we need to read the request to increase their faith in conjunction with that idea of faithful discipleship. Mm, okay. Okay. So now you have in your notes the next part, this increase our faith, which it's going to cause some problems, actually, for Calvin a little bit, but also there's some translation issues here. There are indeed, and, and um, the Greek text is prostes hemen piston, um, the verb is prostithemi, which normally means increase, mm-hmm. and in fact, all English translations that I looked at render it with some form of increase. Okay. But the fact that Jesus responds with, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this sycamore tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you, raises a question about whether they even have as much faith as a mustard seed. Mm-hmm. Now, this has to do with the construction of the conditional sentence. And, and we may not be familiar with that, but it's the if-then kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you had faith, then you could say. Oh, I right? see. Mm-hmm. So um, the New Testament, in, in New Testament, Testament Greek, there are four primary forms of conditional statements, and the different forms relate to the assumption about the reality of the condition or the lack thereof based on primarily on the tense and mood of the verbs. And as in this case, many times the forms of conditional sentences are mixed up, and that's what's going on here. What's called the protesis or the if part of the statement implies the reality of their faith. It's the verb echo as a present indicative, if you have faith as, a, as the size mm-hmm, of a mustard mm-hmm. seed. Um, and so that suggests, okay, yeah, maybe you do have faith. But the apodosis, which is the then part of the condition, implies that they could not fulfill the condition. So you have the imperfect indicative, elegete, you could say, and you have the aorist oh, indicative, hupecusin, sure. it would obey. 
and both and, and and those are translated right there i think both are typically used in contrary to fact conditional statements in the greek new testament oh wow so you've got a bit of a mixture here but the idea is really it sounds like jesus is calling into question whether they have that much faith and so um uh, basically that that means then it would be better to translate it as a request for jesus to give them give faith. them faith yeah. instead of increase our faith and yeah. that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, and you can understand why a good Roman Catholic scholar like Fitzmaier would have a problem with that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But what it, I, I, I actually really like that. Does is it? Does anyone translate it? That I may be jumping ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, actually, you know the the older edition of the Bauerart Gingrich Donker advocated that translation for prostisthemy here. Also, Green uh, uh, advocates that, and he summarizes it well, I think, and I'm quoting here, Jesus' reply casts doubt on whether his apostles have yet even this much Mm -hmm. faith. And I think it's significant that, and I think Green is using the word apostles here intentionally, whether his apostles Right, right. And, you know, by the time Luke is written, they would have been known as apostles, right? Right, right. They would have had acts available probably as well as Luke, and they would have known about the the deeds of the apostles and all they had done to build the church. And so they would have been respected and honored. And yet here, Luke, you know, Jesus' reply in Luke raises the question about whether the apostles have even as much faith as a mustard seed. I think this also helps us understand the point of the proverbial saying that's going to follow. At the same time, I think, however, we need to recognize that in Luke, it's not the amount of faith that counts, but rather simply having faith. And, and I'm, here I'm following an idea from Francois Bavon's commentary. He says, to have faith is tantamount to entering into God's domain and everything is possible for God. That's something that I think we've seen already. You know, mm-hmm. later on, Jesus will quote that in Luke 18, 27. But we've seen some of that already, mm-hmm. in, 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 in at least implicit, in especially the, the infancy narratives and the confidence that the speakers in the infancy right. narratives place in, in the the program of reversal that god is right right yeah 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 Yeah. so all of a sudden these tacked together verses are starting to make some sense it's kind of exciting yeah and so there's a the next piece then is an illustration right right? jesus follows up with a simple story to illustrate the point that when his disciples fulfilled the demands of discipleship rigorous though they may be they should realize they've only done their duty quote unquote Mm -hmm. they've only done really what is normal for a disciple it's more of a proverbial saying in the form of a question than than we would say a parable necessarily. But Jesus frames it this way. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. To thank, Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? And that's verses seven Mm -hmm. through nine. Now, this may seem harsh to us, but it was a normal part of life in that day. The implication is that Jesus is talking about a farmer, perhaps, who's a landowner, and he has one slave who does everything. You know, some of the larger estates would have had multiple slaves, Mm -hmm. right? They would have had 
field workers and they would have had household servants. But this farmer has one slave who does everything. After working in the field outside, he comes indoors and performs his household chores inside before his duties are complete. And he gets to even sit down and have his own meal. Right. And the idea is that by simply completing his daily duties, demanding though they may have been, the slave has not thereby obligated his master to reward him in any way. Right. Right. He's only done what was expected. Clearly, the challenge here is t- two very different time frames. Yes. The, you know, yes. today's world, this is just, you can't wrap your brain around it because the whole idea of slavery is so abhorrent that right. it's hard to, well, of course you should be warned, but, but you have well, to We live in it. a context where we're debating about, you know, workers' rights to remote to work remotely, yes, right? Exactly, and, and exactly. Workers' rights was not something that was an issue in that. Right, day. right. So it's a little hard. It's a little hard to wrap your brain around in mm. terms. But you have to. You're right. You have to go back to the context of yeah. the day. Yeah. yeah. This would have been a common scenario. Right. Right. Yeah. So Jesus' conclusion in verse 10 also seems harsh to our ears. So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. And the impression of the harshness, I think, is strengthened by the translation worthless Mm -hmm. for the adjective akrios. And it's found in the new RSV and only in the new RSV. Oh, interesting. It's not found anywhere else. Interesting. Yeah. Other translations include unprofitable. That's the Geneva Bible, the King James, and and Bibles influenced by the King James. Unworthy in the RSV and the NIV and a number of more recent translations. And ordinary. I found that interesting. That's the Good News Translation or Today's English and, and the New Testament for Everyone by Tom Wright. Interesting. So this word akrios is uncommon in the New Testament and the Septuagint, but the idea I think is best captured perhaps by the common English Bible translation, we servants deserve no special praise. We have only done our duty. I think that's the idea I here. I really like that. We don't really deserve any kind of special recognition for having done what, what you expected was to expected do. to do. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I like that one the best, and I think that fits with, I mean, the others are so derogatory you know, worthless, worthless. Unprofitable. Oh my. All, even unworthy, all of those really dehumanize the slave. The only here. one I think is ordinary. Oh, ordinary, ordinary is, is, is okay. Is, is yeah. much better. Yeah, yeah. Well, I agree. Ordinary is okay. But I like the CEB translation a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Lo and Nida in their lexicon of the Greek New Testament, according to Somatic Domains, this is the translation that they endorse mm. here that uh, of, of Akrios. It means we're deserving no special praise. Oh, oh yeah. 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 I like that. So again, although one of the things I think we're dealing with here is the disciples' lack of faith and or understanding. And, you know, we saw that kind of front and center in Mark's gospel. Next year, we're going to see it highlighted a little bit differently. Uh, Jesus calls them, you of little faith, and it's a Greek word, oligopistoi, means literally little faith, you little faith ones, you Mm -hmm, know. mm -hmm. And um, so um, both Mark and and Matthew have their own way of emphasizing this. Luke is a little more subtle about it. But I think we see here a sort of a clear reference to the disciples' lack of faith and our understanding, mm. especially in light of the fact that one of the things we're going to find out in Luke's gospel is that when Luke recounts the Last Supper, and, and you know, basically the Last Supper in all the gospels, in all the synoptic gospels, is a place where Jesus is making one last effort to try to help them understand his purpose, right, right. despite the fact that they didn't get what was going on. Right, right. But in Luke's gospel... The argument about who was going to have the greatest position of honor in the coming kingdom, Mm -hmm. that takes place right after the Last Supper. 
when Jesus says, this is my body, mm -hmm. this is my blood. <laughs> and so I think in Luke's gospel, that is just a very stark juxtaposition there. And and mm -hmm. this is how Luke emphasizes the lack of understanding uh, of the lack yeah, of faith yeah. on the part of okay. the disciples. Yeah, Even like at that, that point, the, the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's just shared the Last Supper right. with them. He's just tried to use the elements of the Passover meal to help them understand his impending death. And they, leave, they walk out of the room arguing about who's going to have the greatest place yeah. in yeah. the place they, of greatest honor in the coming kingdom they don't get it and and yeah and i think this here also reflects that, that yeah I mean, and that's i think that's what this mind. whole passage is about this whole right. passage is about you know the the yes the demands of discipleship are rigorous uh but this is what it means to follow jesus what what i like about this too is when you're thinking about preaching it I, I think it reflects today. It's so easy for us to say, oh, I, I follow Jesus. I do these things. And um, I think we take it too lightly as well. I think that the that what is called and this devotion that is called is, is hard for us as humans. We it all is. fall short. I, we have just as much a challenge with some of the things Jesus commanded the disciples and the, and the Jewish leaders to do. I mean, just the whole parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a challenge exactly. to all of us, but all yeah. of that stuff, you know, giving without expecting to receive, showing hospitality to the destitute, generous hospitality to the destitute, yeah. even inviting them into your own home. You know, who, who's going to do that these days? Right. That's, that's a challenge for us still. It still is. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. You bet. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, Christy's going to talk to us about the Reformers and especially Calvin. And, you know, one of the things we need to note about Calvin's commentaries is that, and we've mentioned this before, but I thought I would just remind everybody, uh, Calvin's commentaries on the Synoptic Gospels are a harmony that's primarily based around Matthew. And so I think it's not unfair to say that Calvin doesn't always give Mark and Luke their fair share because he focuses on Matthew. And um, <clears throat> especially with some of the parts of this passage that are at least superficially parallel in Matthew, uh, Calvin deals with them in, in the in that in the sequence of, of the right, harmony where, right. where they fall in Matthew's gospel, not in Luke. Right, so that makes it a little bit challenging to to to, is, to work with with Calvin. It, it it is, and we can't really do the same kind of analysis that Alan did because Calvin does not do that. Now, I'm mm -hmm. going to talk only about Calvin today, by the mm -hmm. way. But uh, yeah, it's really really important to know that is he's he's so busy harmonizing this into a pattern of the life of Jesus that then you miss <clears> that you miss that artistic piece that is done by the gospel writer. Right. So what you have here then is this kind of division of this passage um, into two, two places. Um, and, well, and, and again, you know, mm -hmm. Calvin's commentary really is a harmony that's sort of based around Matthew's gospel. Yeah, so absolutely. it's really focused right. more on Matthew however, than, than the However, other. as part of this is only in Luke. So when right, that happens, right. when then that happens, he, he does, focuses strictly on he does, Luke. He does, he does. So, for example, verses 5 and 6, the first part of, of the Revised <laughs> Common Lectionary, there is general agreement that these correspond to Matthew 17, 19 to 21, and that the disciples were, in this case, asking God to increase their faith because they were unable to cast out demons. Um, but Luke, as we've mentioned, does not put this in the same context. Right. 
Right. Um, so I really I would call that a superficial parallel. I would not call that a true parallel because right. a true parallel would be where both Matthew and Mark are right. both Matthew and Luke are using the same uh, saying in the same context. Right. Right. Yeah. But again, that's not part of Calvin's like no, I know. goal. And I know. and I it is interesting and I think of course it's impacted us to today, but it was interesting that that was kind of part of the vision they wanted to create this one mm-hmm. single narrative. Mm-hmm. And um, I will give Calvin credit for this. Sometimes he says, and sometimes this just doesn't quite work. Yeah. He admits that it doesn't quite work, yeah. even even yeah. in his analyses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, the second part of this is um, unique to Luke. And what is significant here is that there is no attempt to place these within the context of one another, but rather by that single narrative. In other words, he's still placing it <laughs> says, yeah, look, just, this is still Matthew, uh, Ma- Matthew's basic thing, but this, basic, is, this is separate. It's, it's yeah. basically, it's the base. it's the flow of Matthew's yeah, gospel exact, and he integrates Mark yeah, and Luke exactly. into that. Yeah, yeah. But what is really significant for Calvin is that this next portion is used to support what becomes known as the theological point of total depravity. Now, I don't see Calvin making a point saying total depravity anywhere, but that is how it's understood by people that have read Calvin later. Mm-hmm. And his overall, and I'm going to quote him here on and off here, but his overall analysis is that because we are, quote, bond slaves to God, that he is under no obligation to us. Hey, you know, when I, when I <laughs> read that part of your notes, it was just like, Wow, that is a very different image of God than yes. I think I have. Yes, yes, <laughs> right? Um, and again, I think it, it has a harshness that doesn't quite ring in today's world yes. very well. Yes, But, you know, it's just that, that we're, we're, we're bound to God, and therefore we, we operate with God because of our love for God yes, and not indeed. because of that God owes us something and... Remember, he's operating out of um, out of this this time period when so many people have fallen into what they're doing to gain God's approval and right. gain their salvation. So he's, res- yeah. this, he's responding to this, and so then he says, "Quote: For since we are His, He can owe us nothing in return." So what is important is that we can't do anything to gain merit with God. God owes us nothing. And I can, I can, I can, th- that's a little bit more, I think, palatable, I think, to, to, to um, a contemporary theology. You know, that we, we don't see, right. uh, I don't know, I, maybe some people do, but I don't see the things I try to do in service to God as somehow gaining right, merit. Right, But again, that's so embedded in the Roman Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and therefore, if, if you haven't done duties to, you know, gain your, gain your salvation. I mean, that's a whole process, yeah. you know, then, then you're cast out. So, well, and you know, I've commented before, I think part of the genius of the Roman Catholic system is they have sort of a, a well laid out methodology by which one lives out the Christian life and, mm-hmm. and, and by which you practice your discipleship. The, de- the, the huge detriment to that is built into that is this idea that with each step you gain merit. Right. <laughs> and right. and that, is, that is very foreign to the gospel. It, it, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, as Calvin points out, that human beings have wanted to, quote, call God to a reckoning, mm-hmm. and therefore we have merit-based concepts of grace and 
since the beginning of time, and it is not how God works, said Calvin. So mm-hmm. Calvin says, quote, we must grasp Christ's statement that we serve God without any pay, but are at his command on the understanding that we owe him all that is in us. Yeah, and, and again, that makes sense to me, you know, that yeah. all of life belongs to God. Well, and when, when, when you think of this, and sometimes this sounds harsh, but when you think of this as that love that you would do anything, you don't expect anything mm-hmm. in return because it's just that pureness of heart. And you know when you respond to the world <laughs> with that pureness of heart, that's, the reward is built in, if you will. Yeah. It's it, it, in, within that, that, that relationship of love. But if you're doing it because you expect someone to owe you something, that's where the problems all start to build. I, I've encountered that when I've tried to emphasize the unconditional nature of God's love for everyone, that mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything to earn it. And I've even, I mean, even in Presbyterian churches, especially in Presbyterian churches, I've had people say, well, then why do we go to church? Yeah, And my response is usually, well, I would think it's because we have encountered Christ and in Christ we've encountered the love of God that has, that, that has transformed right. us and we want to uh, develop our relationship with Christ and with God and we want to show our love in return. You know? Right, right. And, and they just kind of stare at me. We had a saying in Texas, it's probably a saying in, in Nebraska too, like a calf staring at a new gate. You know, it's like, what is this? That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I, I've heard that too. Um, this this idea that, uh, you know, especially in the Roman Catholic tradition, oh, it's obligation. It's an obligation to go to feast day this yes. day. It's an obligation to go to mass. It's an obligation, and it's that takes away the, I come to worship because I love God. Exactly. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, it, it it's a different it's coming out of a different space. Well, it, it, yeah, but it, and in, in our context, it's, it's, it seems to manifest itself more. As I come to worship so that I can be assured that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we're assured of our eternal destiny because of what God has done in Christ, not because of anything we do. <laughs> so more quotes from Calvin to this end. Um, so for, um, all, that, all that we are is owed to God, and therefore we don't retire from God's service. I like that. I love that too. We yeah. are called to practice ministry until death that we, quote, not only live but die to the Lord. And so this, it's like your whole, it's that your whole life is in mm-hmm. God. It's not that you've, hey, I've got this far, now I've earned my mm-hmm. way there. It's, it's, and I can quit. And this fits yeah. within the context of sanctification, one yeah. of our theological points. You know, this <laughs> idea that we continue to grow and walk with God, even when we maybe can't do some of the same things we do when we're younger, we are still serving God maybe in a new context, but we're still serving out of love. I, I, I can't help but think of my dear friend, Alan Anderson, who was a PCUSA pastor originally from Virginia. He spent 22 years as the pastor of Texas City, Texas, which was just down the road from where I served in the Houston area. And uh, he was retired by the time I came into the Presbyterian world, and he had been the interim pastor at the little church I served in the Houston area. And he stayed on and became the parish associate at that church. And I think even after I left, he, he you know, had uh, talked to the new pastor and was, was again, pastor, parish associate. I think he was parish associate until his death. Wow. And, of course, you know, 
um, in his later years, he, his strength was failing, but, but, you know, that's what I think about, you know, when I think about, you don't retire from God's service, yeah, you yeah. know, he, he, you know, his, his ability to serve diminished as his, as his strength diminished, but his, his heart right. was never right. changed from tr- seeking to serve God. Exactly. Um, now moving on, Calvin does note that scripture does promise to reward a reward to works but he solves by explaining that the reward is merely god's goodwill not something earned he criticizes those who put rewards and merit together they are not the same thing and then he goes on of course to attack the roman catholic for condon merit uh meritum dig condino uh that's the latin which is a practice by which um is perhaps I mean, we might just say, oh, it's just semantics, but it's really this idea that God is obligated by his love to give reward for well-deserved acts. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not too far from Calvin's position, actually, but there's an emphasis from Calvin that God is not obligated in any way to human beings, even out of God's love. You so, know, when I, when I read this part, I thought about, you know, in my own life, um, I, 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 there have been a few times in my life where I've, you know, encountered some difficulties in life. And I've thought, you know, well, Lord, I'm trying to be faithful to you. What's up with this? You know, (laughs) and I think that's normal for all of us. Right. But I don't really think of what I do as sort of gaining reward in heaven. The only thing I think of is I hope that what I'm doing is pleasing to the Lord. Right, right, right. And that's, that's a, yeah, that's a, a, a fine thing. This is kind of reminds me too. And, you know, kind of some of these ideas of, of I'm going to get what I deserve, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that comes in and that can lead to all kinds of things of yeah. pride right. and of being judging. It leads I to I would have sins. to say that what I have gotten in life is way more than what I deserve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So yeah. now I, I moved from the commentaries to the institutes where he goes into more detail about this in book three. Um, and so in the Roman Catholic tradition, they had what they called the, the works of supererogation. And these are works that are in excess of what is required, right? Because they have these requirements. But according to Calvin, God only expects perfect fulfillment of the law. This takes God's expectations for our lives and pushes it aside and instead gives credit to what human beings deem as worthy of God's affirmation mm-hmm. and award. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that whole system of merits and and the idea of of excess merit that you can somehow earn, you know, who came up with that? (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, when you go right to scripture and what Jesus was talking about, the the law's already here, (laughs) right? Um, The idea of human-defied righteousness in Calvin's mind still is a sin. He says, quote, truly they shall have understood that men's whole righteousness gathered together in one heap could not make compensation compensation for a single sin. Well, and I, I'm thinking, I think of the passage in Jeremiah, I believe it was Jeremiah, uh, may have been Ezekiel, I can't remember to, right at the moment, that, that all of our righteousness is like a filthy, filthy yeah. piece of yeah, cloth. The, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Human beings can't satisfy God. Yeah. Again, this is total depravity, right? This yeah. is that, right back to that, that 
um, theological point that we attribute to Calvin. We cannot be awarded for what we are expected to do. We must act as unworthy servants. And he quotes our passage in doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, He emphasizes that we are really conceited in thinking that we can do something amazing to please God beyond what is expected of us. This is what is expected is the law, and we should not brag about what we do when it is part of what we are expected to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I think you know, we, we have to recognize as well with Calvin, Calvin probably has a much more positive view of the law than a lot of us are familiar with, uh, because Luther's take on the law has probably be, become more familiar to most of us. Um, uh, Luther, um, Luther had more of the idea that we can't we think we, there's no way we can fulfill the law. It's just not possible. And in fact, gospel is contrary to law, and he places them right, at odds right, with one right. another. And I think that has, has really translated more into American Christianity, whereas I really do like Calvin's idea that, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, Moses and the prophets, as Jesus was speaking about in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they're still just as relevant today as they ever were. And and we, we are still... Right. You know, all the New Testament writers emphasize that the moral teachings of the of the law and the prophets right. are still just as much relevant for us. Our, our right, lives. right, and, and that's something that Calvin really, right. really, I think, brought to us through in that in, so in the too. Reformation. I that was a unique too. contribution of Calvin. Well, and I, I think because Calvin too is is one of the really, and and I think this explains what he's trying to do, even mm-hmm. to make this 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 picture of God's creating. L- beings he's created beings all the way to an end point and Absolutely. so he's really tr- having us draw the whole picture and breadth of scripture together instead and, of and the purpose of god is is consistent and coherent yeah, exactly yeah Thank you don't you. have yes. some kind of some kind of uh dis- different dispensations or, right. or some sort of bifurcation in god's purpose god's right. purpose is consistent from the beginning from right. creation to fulfillment right yeah. right so Calvin also uses um, 17.5 in the Institutes to discuss the sacraments. So reformers debate how the sacraments confer grace. And one of the big question marks is what happened in the sacrament if one does not believe? <laughs> really a problem for Roman yes, Catholicism. Indeed. And we see this today, right? You don't give the sacrament to somebody that doesn't believe, that doesn't understand it our way. You right? don't even give sacrament to a believer who's not properly fessed up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this, of course, leads, of course, leads to a bigger question of what really is belief. If one believes that one should should be sufficient to receive the benefit of the sacrament, um, but belief for many was not something that could waver. It was a state mm. of being. That, and to me, that is just almost hard to wrap my head yeah. around. How how could they think? Uh, I mean, couldn't they had to have been aware of their own the the fluctuation in their own faith? Right. How right. how could anybody think of faith as something that was uh, I mean, they must have set the bar low well, or something for no, faith. Well, no, I mean, you're saying I that, but I, I'll, we'll talk maybe about this later, but I had a pastor. is either you had faith or you didn't have faith. You couldn't. Wow. And and for many people, I think, I, I've heard this from some um, evangelical traditions as yes. well. You either believe or you don't. And that's a problem because yes. um, it, it, it doesn't allow people to, to increase, to... Um, it doesn't grow? allow people to be human beings. <laughs> exactly. For Calvin, the sacrament will, quote, sustain, 
nourish, confirm, and increase our faith. Yeah, I like that language. Yeah, and what is interesting is that he uses this text to show that faith is not static, but might be something that grows. And here he lists that the apostles ask God to increase their faith instead of assume that faith itself is perfection. And particularly for the apostles, right? Uh, Exactly. (laughs) And then he also lists Matthew 9, 24 on the quote, O Lord, Help my unbelief. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. Yes. I like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. A sinner will never have perfect belief. And you know, there there are some there are some of the Bible's prayers that I I, I love and I use myself personally on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that's one of them. I yeah. believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, that's what I have for you today. There's some kind of thick theological um, underpinnings of how this is interpreted by Calvin. And so I think um, I, and I think it's helpful because those sometimes we have in our minds things like, oh, Calvin believed in total depravity, but this is some of the stuff that he's using to support what becomes that theological mm-hmm. premise. So, yeah, thanks, Christy. You're welcome. Hi, friends. We're back. And in the break, we were talking a little bit further about Calvin. And, and I thought we would take take the opportunity to let that be a jumping point for us to uh, um, talk about our third segment. So, Christy, share with us the thoughts we were <laughs> sure. about Calvin here. Well, you know, as I said, I haven't seen Calvin use total depravity in his own language. The word, the, the, the phrase particular itself. particular phrase that mm-hmm. it's, a, it's kind of adopted later. And I think we tend to think of it as being kind of harsh. It's kind mm-hmm. of a harsh point idea. Um, well, we think of Calvinism as harsh. We think of Calvinism as harsh. And yet I think we softened him today once you kind of read both the Institutes and his commentaries. And what's really interesting is it kind of helps us think about this idea of total depravity. It's really freeing because... It's not all the stuff you do, but it's just this, this, this pure love that mm-hmm. is taking you and your response in your love. Right. And all of a sudden, it takes on a much warmer, hopeful sense of, look, it's yeah. not what you do. It's what God does. Yes, God it's does what God has done. And what God <laughs> yeah. has done. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's kind of a breath of fresh air when you take it out of kind of the harshness that it gets kind of molded into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I was, I was talking about how when I was in the Baptist world, there, there was, there was, and probably still is a quote unquote reformed branch or reformed movement within the Baptist world. And, um, uh, some people went around talking about how many points of Calvinism <laughs> they, they, they agreed with. And of course, that may be the only way that people know of Calvin today, but that the, the, those, the so-called five points of Calvinism refer to the statements of the, of the Synod of Dort mm-hmm. in the Netherlands, which right. was long after Calvin, right. and in a very different context. And I'm not even sure Calvin would have affirmed the, the points of the Synod of oh, Dort. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> not from the Calvin I've read. And um, not from the Calvin I've read. And I think there's so much that goes on historically between Calvin and Calvin's death. And then when we move up to the Synod yeah, of Dort, yeah. that really impacts uh, and it, it really forms, you really move into this times of rigidity of confessional identity yeah. and the rigidity of confessional identity actually makes, takes what are beautiful, um, expressions of response in God's love to being harsh practices of the church. And it doesn't, 
it, it really is it really is a, a sad direction it actually. is i think i think when people think of calvin in terms of the five points of calvinism as they're known you know wrong mistakenly known as basically the five points of the senate of dort is what they are right, right. um uh, and when when that's the way people see calvin it's no wonder they think of calvin as being harsh and rigid right, because right. The, the, the five points right. of the senate of dort are, are harsh and rigid well and you know of course when we read about calvin we realize a person who is as i said Many times. I think he probably would be on the spectrum, the autistic spectrum. <laughs> I think he was kind of an awkward fellow. I don't think he had the best bedside manner, but he was, for his day, I think I think he was a good pastor. I think he was he was truly concerned about, um, about people, about people um, finding truth in God and helping leading them there within the context of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, he was deeply concerned about the people in France and them being, if, if, he, if you will, duped by the Roman Catholic tradition mm-hmm. there. Um, and he was deeply concerned about their souls. Mm-hmm. And um, so... <laughs> I think I think you have a very awkward person who also go who also has impacted um, his reputation, and yet he's really one of the most brilliant minds of his day. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you have to keep him in the context of his day. Sure, I mean, he's really the first one to write the systematic theology, and right. and that's that is huge. Yeah. yeah, well, and I love that whole pastoral uh, side that you that you bring out in in oftentimes in your segment of our podcast. Um, you know, the idea that uh, we can't earn God's favor, we can't do anything to merit rewards. Um, is freeing because you know if we're honest with ourselves we all know that we 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 don't live up to even our own expectations we all know that we fall short constantly we all know that our faith wavers you know depending on where we are in life and right. the circumstances right. and even from day to day sometimes our faith can waver even within the course of a day sometimes our faith can waver right. and that's that's just being a normal human being and you know when we we hear calvin talking about that you know it's it's not about what we earn or what we somehow that we're trying to gain a reward but it's rather you know god's grace and god's love you know it is freeing right and and i think that takes us back to to um the passage in luke because you know on the surface of things to say you know we're just ordinary servants we don't deserve any kind of special praise we've only done what we were expected to do you know it sounds almost self-deprecatory right but right, again right. It almost is kind of freeing in that right in that i think jesus knew that the things he was asking the disciples to do were going to challenge them to the core of their right, humanity right. and their being because right. it was contrary to what they were, were normal right. you know what what was their human nature but and 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 yet, so the two things Jesus does, he doesn't back off from the demand. Right. He continues no, he to make the demand clear, right. and he calls them to discipleship. Mm-hmm. But I think he also kind of in in this passage gives them a sense of, you know, yeah, well, you're gonna you're you're gonna do your best, and you're gonna maybe fall short, but but at the end of the day, you're gonna do some good things. You maybe you're not gonna you're not gonna fulfill some of the things that you right. hope to, but at the end of the day, you can say we've done the best we could. Right. When I think what's also interesting about this is the debate about what I would do. I mean, how much 
how much time and energy goes into that. Um, and it's like, you don't have to do that mental debate. Don't waste your energy there. You're all in. And when you're what all in, this is how to do? you respond. Yeah. yeah, so what have to I do? What, how much do, do I have to do to get into heaven? Yeah. That's, that's the, there, that's the there's question. There's a question, right? Mm-hmm. Or what do I have to do to be a Christian? And, and it takes away that. Mm-hmm. And you just have to love God with mm-hmm. all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then all of a sudden, you are responding in that. And, and it, You're responding... Uh, to God's love yeah. with the yeah. love that you have in your heart, yeah. with the love and the faith that you have, right? right and right. and and you don't have to you don't have to respond with the love and the faith someone else has because right. you can only respond with the love and the faith exactly. that you have. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I um I went to um so I had a pastor once many years ago and from the pulpit he preached. You know, if you question at all in your faith, mm. you you are. You obviously aren't saved, mm. and it was really, it was really traumatic for me, especially at that point in my life. And thinking about how that kind of uh, that kind of statement, either or, you either believe or you don't, you either are all in or you're not, um, is kind of, I think, the wrong approach. And I, I guess what I like about this passage is it's reminding us that here are the apostles, and we are recognizing that they, they're. They're, they're asking this, for they're faith. They're asking for faith. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they're they're still very human, and I think there's something kind of beautiful about that. There that is. that, and I've heard this from this guy. I've heard it from some other evangelical spaces as well. That we ha- and we have to be really careful about that. Of, of, if you will, judging from the pulpit with someone has enough faith or not. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's Jesus is encouraging them with this. Actually, even though it yeah. seems on the surface as being harsh because of the whole slave um, imagery, mm-hmm. it really is an encouraging one. You mm-hmm. know, just if you fall into love, if you fall into faith, um, just respond, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, you know, I, I have to confess, when I hear somebody who who comes at something with that kind of all or nothing thinking, the first thought that crosses my mind is, what is that person trying to hide? What is that person trying to suppress? What is that? There's a part of that person that he's not willing to admit even to himself. And he's, 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 you know, again, it's methinks the man protesteth too much. You know, he's, he's overdoing it and overcompensating Mm -hmm. with this kind of rigidity. Right. Uh, his own sense of lack and or some some sense of of lack right. in himself yeah and and unfortunately you know i feel badly for him but unfortunately that kind of rhetoric does a lot of damage it to did, people it does a, it does more damage than it does help and yeah. um you know um at that point i actually left that church which i never thought i would do but mm-hmm. i think um I just didn't know where to go from there. Mm. It was not the right time for me to hear that message, even if he didn't mean it to be harsh. It really yeah. came off harsh. So. Well, and yeah, I mean, if, if the apostles could ask for faith, <laughs> why can't we? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So friends, enjoy this passage and enjoy preaching on it. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.